from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Ray and Lanelma Johnson. Ray and Lanelma are childhood sweethearts who grew up in Perry, Oklahoma, and have now been married for 50 years. They found out about the Baha'i faith when Ray was at Stanford University. Ray and Lanelma ultimately went to India to direct the New Era School. They returned to the U.S. and became part of the first administrative team for the new Maxwell International School in Canada. I started the interview by asking Ray where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Both Lanelma and I were born and raised in a little town in Oklahoma called Perry, P-E-R-R-Y. It's sort of right smack in the center of Oklahoma. So we're both Okies, born and bred. We went to the same schools together, and you might say that we were high school sweethearts, and we got married after my first year in university at the University of Oklahoma when we were 19 years old. This year we are celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary. Well, congratulations. That's terrific. What was family life and religious life like for you, Ray? I think that you might say that we, our, both of our parents, you know, were active in the uh, First Christian Church, the Protestant Church in town, and so both Lanelma and I were active in the uh, uh, youth organizations in the church, and we just kind of grew up as a church-going Sunday morning and Wednesday night type of an affair. So that was our foundation of religion as such. Lanelma, you want to add to that? We attended church camps every summer and so forth. But as far as growing up there, the town was small, about 5,000 people, so everybody knew everybody just about. It was a small community, very safe and loving community, and I was active in the National Honor Society. I was a twirler in the band and just, you know, the typical... Ray, you might tell him what you did, too. Um. (laughs) Well, she's wanting me to tell you that I went to the University of Oklahoma on a wrestling scholarship. Uh Uh-huh. Perry is well known for the wrestling capital of the world, so... (laughs) Oh, okay. That's good to know. (laughs) Yeah, we have more, more national state titles than any other place in the United States, and so... As a small town, the the whole town was focused on wrestling and so on, and that sort of dictated my athletic life as I was growing up, but it paid for my college education. And what weight class did you wrestle in? Well, I'm nowhere near that weight class now, but 154, (laughs) 165 at the university level. Uh And where, where did you end up going to university? I did them a bachelor's and master's at the University of Oklahoma, OU, 
And then I taught school for a few years uh, out in Colorado, at Golden, Colorado. And then I ended up doing some doctoral work at Stanford University. Stanford is where my wife and I discovered the Baha'i faith. And how about you, Lanelma? What did you do after high school? After high school, I went to business school. My sister and I, I had just one sister who was 17 months older. We were the first people in our family, my mother's family or my father's family, actually, to go past high school because my grandparents were actually in the, I don't know if you've heard of the Cherokee Strip Run. No, I haven't. In Oklahoma, where the homesteaders would, they got in a line on in the covered wagons and they went across the plains and staked their homesteads. So I come from that kind of a background. So we went on to, my sister and I both, to business school in Oklahoma City. And after two years, finished that school and started a good job in Oklahoma City. And Ray and I got married then in 1960. Mm -hmm. I married her for her money. (laughs) (laughs) So when when did you first start dating? I think we had our first date actually for a dance and you have to realize dating in the 1950s was like the parents drive you and pick you up and you Mm -hmm. go and so you're not really by yourselves you're in a group Mm -hmm. that was the kind of dating we did Uh, i think we went to a band dance if i'm not mistaken and ray got me a corsage you know it was like that Mm -hmm. We were both very involved with, we had this teen town in our home town, and Ray was the mayor of the teen town, and I was the secretary, and it was a a place where the youth could hang out for dancing and playing pool, and was run by the students, but we had a student sponsor, and we had the jukebox, and, you know, all the music was Elvis. Mm. who was new in those days, and many parents were against it. And those were the days that we went through high school. It was a great time. Did you go out to California as soon as you got married? We got married after my freshman year at the University of Oklahoma. All right. And so we continued my studies at at OU through my uh, master's degree. I'd enrolled in what you would say, are joined up with a uh, something called the Platoon Leaders Corps of the Marines. So back then, you know, you either did ROTC or, you know, you joined up something. And, and I joined the Marine Corps. It was the beginning of Vietnam. And so even though we were married, I was already in the Marine Corps. And I was able to get my commission when I graduated from the university uh, as a lieutenant. But then when I went from um, Quantico to Pensacola, Florida for for flight training, I was in special services at that time. On an obstacle course, I tore out the ligaments in my knee, uh, which was already had to several operations from being a wrestler. And they ended up giving me a medical discharge and that's what kind of altered our direction. So we finished, went back to school, did my master's degree, became a teacher, 
and went to Golden, Colorado, taught for two or three years there, and then it was a very interesting thing. There was an um, educational consultant that was coming through town and doing some in-service at, for all the teachers of Jefferson County School System. My superintendent called me up and said, I've got somebody I want you to meet, and he took me to meet this guy. I don't know why he picked my name out of the hat, but in the conversation with this individual from Stanford University, he wanted me to come out and be interviewed for a position as a research associate on this big federal research grant. His name was Dr. Dwight Allen. Dwight Allen invited me to come to Stanford, and we ended up settling out there. Uh, We already had our first child, our daughter, was born when I, while we were at the University of Oklahoma, and then we had a son who was born when we were in Colorado, and then our last son was born while we were at Stanford University. Now, did Dwight Allen pick you out to interview with him and then made that offer to you? Is that how that worked? That's how it worked. I guess Dwight had this big federal research grant called Flexible Scheduling and Vocational Education or something like that. And uh, he was looking for a director uh, for that particular project that had some vocational background. And my first degree was in engineering, industrial engineering. And then my second degree was in education. And so I was teaching in the, the vocational field. And because of some of the curriculum work I was doing in the district, uh, my superintendent kind of put me together with Dwight, and Dwight invited me to Stanford and then offered me a position there to work on my doctorate and to help out with this federally funded research grant. And so that's how I got hooked up with Dwight Allen back in 19, what, huh? 66. And so, Lanelma, I guess you were a full-time mom at this point. Yes, I was, and very fortunate because the grant uh, not only covered Ray's tuition for his coursework, but paid us enough salary to live on, and we lived in university housing, and it was just great because there were a lot of international um, students there, young families, and it was a wonderful two years that we spent there, and we had a wonderful time. And I guess it was at that point that you were introduced to the Baha'i faith? I have an older brother and a younger brother. And my older brother was a minister in the uh, First Christian Church in Boulder, Colorado. We used to have, uh, I call them now, theological discussions, but back then they were brotherly arguments. But anyway, during the course of one of those, I'd mentioned that we had taken this position to go to California, and while we were there, we were going to look at different religions. Well, of course, different religions to me at that time was different denominations of the Protestant Church. He told me, he says, well, while you're out there, if you see anything about the Baha'i faith, you should investigate that, because they seem to have many of the central beliefs that are compatible with the way that you look at the world. So my brother, who was a minister, was the first person to mention the Baha'i faith. And so while at Stanford, I was walking through the quad one day, and I saw a poster. And the poster said, Baha'i faith, 
oneness of religion, oneness of God, oneness of humanity, come for discussions. So I wrote down the phone number, and I went home, and I told Melanelma, and I said, you know, I saw a poster about that Baha'i faith thing my brother mentioned. You want to go check it out? And she said, sure. So I gave a call to the phone number and told them that, you know, we were wanting to know if we could come to one of their discussion groups. And, of course, whoever it was that answered the phone said, you're most welcome, and we found out it was just near us because it was in marriage student housing and some graduate students there by the name of Chris and Julie Rue were conducting these what they call firesides, these informal discussion groups. And that was our introduction uh, while we were at Stanford University to the Baha'i Faith. Now, you said you had these heated discussions with your brother. What would those heated discussions be over? Well, I'm kind of embarrassed now to call them heating discussions, but... uh, (laughs) They were they were brotherly arguments for sure in regards that when we left Oklahoma and we went to Colorado, there was not the particular denomination, the Disciples of Christ, which was called the, the First Christian Church. There was not one in Golden, Colorado, and so we went shopping. And we went to the Methodist Church, we went to the Presbyterian Church, you know, and so on, and we just started realizing that the differences among them were either you got sprinkled or you got dunked or you had communion differently or something, you know, but otherwise everything was, you know, the Gospels and the Bible and the commandments and things of this nature, but there were just these different denominations based on, in one way, very insignificant differences. And so it got us to wondering, you know, about division the churches and their beliefs. So that sort of sent us on our way. Now, our arguments, uh, my brother was a very liberal individual, so we're coming out of, first of all, a, a very closed way of looking at the world, coming from a small town and a church that was closely knitted, and then uh, having this view now of of humanity and why would members of one church be promised that this is the only way, the right way, and if you come this path, you'll be born again and saved, and yet if you choose another path, you will not be saved. And because I was in an intellectual, stimulating, educational environment, and the whole idea of questioning and searching was just beginning to be part of my life at that time. So that's sort of the foundation of starting to question and look at the world and humanity differently than the way that I had been raised, where as a little child, I still remember in the courthouse, you'd go in the main floor of the courthouse, and there would be a white water fountain and a black water fountain, and whites only and blacks only at the Dairy Queen, one window for those that are white and one window for those that are black. So being raised in that sort of environment and looking at as a way of life and then starting to question the rationale of why these divisions exist. Are they valid? Are they true? That search was already becoming a major part of our outlook on life. And Lanelma, you had the same point of view about as you were looking for another church? 
It's interesting that Ray and I were always so close. In fact, in Colorado, we, you know, we were so involved with the church that we did join that we became the youth directors in that church, and we were always very united in our search and very together in our outlook. And so when we started going to these meetings about the Baha'i faith, we were jointly interested and studied together. In fact, we studied almost two years before we accepted the Baha'i faith. But yes, we studied the faith together and we accepted the faith together in 1968. Now, you said you grew up in a very segregated community in Perry, Oklahoma. What was your take on your experience in that segregated society, and when did you see your eyes maybe opening up to maybe what you had experienced all your life might not be what it ought to be? I think there were two major events that started the the realization that humanity is really one big family. Yeah, we, we may look different, we may talk different, we may have different beliefs, but we really are one family. The first one, because we were in high school when um, integration took place in the late 50s, there was a black school and there was the white school. These then came together. It was really a very, from our perspective as high school students at that time, a very smooth integration. The students that came from the black community were just there one year when school started. And they were athletes, and they were band members, and they were classmates. And I think there was a real acceptance that this is okay and this is the way that it should be. Now, I'm sure that there was some issues and some prejudicial arguing back and forth behind doors and things of this nature, but as far as our experiences, both Lanelma's and mine, it was a fairly easy transition. And then the, the next major event, Lanelma, you want to talk about our first trip to Geyserville? That was when we were at Stanford, and we were going to these Baha'i meetings once a week. Dwight Allen and his wife had invited us to come to up to Northern California to a Baha'i school that was called Geyserville at that time. I think the name has changed now to Bosch Baha'i School. But we went with them, and it was called a Unity Feast. And we got there, and there was a huge group of people There were blacks and whites and Hispanics and, I suppose, people from other ethnic backgrounds as well. And for about the first hour, I kept thinking, boy, they are putting on a great show for us (laughs) because these people were so loving to each other. And it couldn't be real, you know, but in a way it it was so real that I finally realized this is real. This is true. It's not a show for us. Then we had more and more experiences like that, where we saw people of so many different races, really, and we we met interracial couples. It was really an eye-opener to see people really loving each other, truly loving each other, 
from all these different backgrounds. It's an amazing experience. And do you want to add anything, Lanelma, to your experience growing up in a segregated society like that? I grew up in a family where there was a lot of prejudice, so I think in order for me to have been able to break out of that cycle, my parents were not so prejudiced as my some of my uncles and aunts and my grandparents. I became very good friends with a couple of wonderful young black women. In fact, we just had a 50th reunion at our high school last year, or two years ago, I guess, uh, from our graduation, 1958. And two of those women came to the reunion, and they wouldn't have come if they hadn't had happy memories and happy experiences, and it was lovely to see them. So I don't really remember having um, any issues with acceptance and becoming friends. I have very fond memories of that. It's interesting that you investigated the Baha'i faith totally independent of Dr. Dwight Allen's invitation for you, Ray, to go out there and do your doctorate and do work for him. When what, yeah. what was the, can you tell the story of how it was that you realized or found out that Dr. Dwight Allen was actually a Baha'i himself? It was an unusual situation because I was working with Dwight almost daily, and we actually were flying to different parts of the United States and working with school districts and school systems. Many times when we'd arrive, he would say that he had a meeting to go to that evening, that I could just do whatever I wanted to. Then one time we went to this Baha'i, this, what they now call firesides, these Baha'i discussion groups, and Dwight Allen was the speaker that evening. <laughs> and so naturally, I raised the question, why didn't you tell me that you were a Baha'i? He said, because I had to make an arrangement with the university not to proselytize, not to teach my faith. I guess that he was a little zealous and over-enthusiastic with some of his graduate assistants or something and uh, got called on the carpet for it. And so he had made a promise that he would answer their questions, but that he would not initiate a conversation about the faith to... uh, any of his graduate students and classes and so on. So I came at that particular time when he may have been on some sort, and I'm not sure to what extent he was under a gag order <laughs> of the university, right. but I, he must have got into some hot water because of his enthusiasm uh, with his love of uh, his faith and so on. So then, whenever we would fly somewhere, I would have my own private tutor deepening on the Baha'i faith, and I would always have my list of questions that I'd been working on with Linelma, so that when we had an opportunity to fly somewhere together, we would be able to engage in a much more personal and, and deeper understanding of this faith that we were beginning to be attracted to. So that's how... Dwight, I didn't know anything that he was a Baha'i when we first met and when he hired me, but it wasn't too long after that that we found out that he was. And then we became active in the community, of course, and got very close to his wife, Carol, and their three boys, who became my students 
when I started teaching, uh, actually teaching the high children's classes and so on. And that was later when, of course, we were at the University of Massachusetts. You said you were studying the Baha'i faith for about two years before you became Baha'is. I'm wondering what was it that finally clicked that decided that this was the time for you to become a Baha'i? Well, it was interesting. We continued to attend a Unitarian church while we studied the Baha'i faith. We recognized that the Baha'i faith was true and valid, several months, maybe half a year before we accepted the faith. And the main reason that we had a hard time doing that was because of the unity in our family. We had sent information to both of our parents on the Baha'i Faith and asked them to read it. But Ray's parents in particular, his mother, was so against the Baha'i Faith and was broken-hearted that we would leave the Christian church. And so we withheld accepting the faith because we were trying to get her to understand the faith more. Then we finally realized that we could no longer, this was like denying yourself the truth. We just couldn't continue doing that. So without her blessing, we went ahead and accepted the faith in April of 1968. I will mention to add to Lanelma's answer to that question was that we realized that Baha'u'llah is who he says he is. And when you reach that point, because both of us were drilled um, in our Sunday school classes, beware of false prophets. And the whole concept of investigation to know that this is valid and true and it's the same voice that is speaking the the same words, the same revelation, the same source, when you reach that point and saying that this is the truth, then you have to realize that it's not a false prophet. It took some time for you to realize that Baha'u'llah was not a false prophet. What was it that clicked for you that he wasn't a false prophet? You know, when you read the, the words of Baha'u'llah, you begin to realize that these are revealed words. This is the, the Word of God. And you begin to realize that you can look at the Bible through spiritual eyes and that it is not to be taken literally in the sense of that many of the, the teachings in the Bible that are what at that time would have been confusing, take on a whole different look when you think of them in a more metaphorical sense, that there is a spiritual lesson behind the words of God that is not just the translation of the word at that time into something that you have to take literally For example, the whole concepts of creationism and that evolution can, in fact, be true when you think of it in the sense of a spiritual evolvement and so on. So I think that when you begin to look at the words in the Bible as you're studying the Bible, you do not see conflict. Linelma, you want to add anything to that? Yes. Well, and what was important to me was that 
Baha'u'llah says that all of the world's religions are true and valid, that they just came at different times in history, and they're all uh, the Word of God. When we came to understand that, you know, we accepted all the world's religions. We still love Jesus Christ, and we accept the Bible as being a holy book, but we just believe that, you know, Jesus Christ said he would return, and we found that Baha'u'llah is, in fact, the return. And after we understood that, because, as they said, we studied the Bible with the Baha'i writings, and then we came to understand the station of Baha'u'llah, that he was a manifestation of God for today, and that in the future there will come another. You are entering this search with a skeptical eye with the claim that was presented, but then over time you came to see the realization of the claim of Baha'u'llah? I would say that's true. Yeah, I'm sure there was the skepticism because of looking at things from beware of false prophets. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we were so attracted to the weekly firesides and the discussions that would happen to find people that were open and loving and a very caring community to guide and to work with us and to listen to our points of view. That environment itself was a very positive experience, That one that we felt like we were getting so much more out of the weekly discussion groups than we were ever getting out of a, a formal Sunday morning sermon. You said that after... I guess it, after so many years, I don't remember how many years it was, you went with Dr. Allen to UMass. Can you describe that situation for us? I was working on my doctorate at, at Stanford, and I had just about finished my coursework. I was actually starting to put into my an idea on paper for a dissertation topic and so on. And Dwight had, a, had signed up as my chief advisor, along with Dr. Bush as one of my committee members. Then he comes to me and he said, Ray, I've made a decision. He said, I've decided to take a position at the University of Massachusetts and where I will be the dean of the College of Education there, the School of Education, as it was called. And I would like for you to come and be my first doctoral student. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> and he said, yep. And he says, I have a position there for you if you're interested. You would be the uh, the director of the Center for Vocational and Technical Education. And I said, uh, gee, that sounds exciting. How big is it and what do they do? And they said, oh, it's not created yet. You are going to come and create it. <laughs> and so anyway, to make a long story short, we were excited about the opportunity at the university, and I was one of his first staff to be hired, as well as he went and we just transferred everything to UMass, and uh, I actually got my doctoral degree from the University of Massachusetts, even though all my coursework was from Stanford. It was, uh, it was an exciting place to be, as you probably know of and have heard of. So we packed up three little kids, and drove across the United States, reestablished ourselves at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. 
Oh, yeah. That was what year? That was 1968. 1968. August of 1968. Mm-hmm. How long were you at UMass? Never were we there. Two years three. or three years? Three, three years. years. We were there for three years. We lived in Amherst and was part of the first local spiritual assembly of Amherst, along with some very, very precious and deep in Baha'is, many of whom are still very close to us. You probably may know of Wilma Ellis. You probably know of Dan Jordan and Nancy Jordan. And then we had Don Streets, David Leopard. Uh, we were all members of this first local spiritual assembly. I really got a crash course in deepening as a brand new Baha'i because we'd only been the Baha'is for about two months before we moved to the University of Massachusetts. So it was my first administrative experience of serving on the local spiritual assembly there. And, and it was a an amazing experience, as you can well imagine, because we had some youth that were in love with the Baha'u'llah, but also pushing the edges, pushing the limits on a, on a number of issues. Black power was very much a part of a lot of their lives. These youth, a lot of them were our babysitters, uh, Bobby Henderson, Billy Roberts, Leon Jones. They all took care of our kids as they were growing up. So it was an exciting place to live. I had interviewed Dr. Dwight Allen, and he told the story of his situation at UMass. Did you stay for the whole tenure of Dr. Dwight Allen, or did you leave before? No, I was gone when all of, all of that occurred. Linelma and I decided that we wanted to go pioneering while our children were young. So we started looking for a pioneering post. We had pretty much settled in on, um, I would be the director of a technical institute in Nigeria. I went and picked up Dwight at, at the airport. We used to make those airport runs all the time. And on the way back, I told him that this was going to be in my last year at UMass, that I was going pioneering to Africa, and this and this. And he says, that all sounds so wonderful, but have you ever thought about going to India? And I said, no, I just told you we're going to Africa. And he says, well, you know, there's this struggling Baha'i school over there in the hill station, and I really think you need to go and take a look at it before you commit yourself. And so as Dwight was very good at doing, we ended up doing 180 degrees almost, and we did a look-see, and we ended up packing our three kids that were three, five, and seven years old at that time, and off to India we go. So that happened in 1971, and I think that Dwight's thing started the year or two after that. You mentioned pioneering. Could you explain to our listeners what that means? It's an exciting opportunity for Baha'is at any point in their life. It's not a requirement by any means. There's a term called pioneering, and that's, it's not missionary work, but it is in the sense that you're going to a place to help that community become deepened in the Baha'i faith, to grow the Baha'i community, to support the community activities. And it's primarily your responsibility to find a job, to take care of yourself, but to realize that you are moving there to be part of that community and under their administrative direction and responsibility. And so that's really what pioneering is about, is going somewhere 
And you can even do be a home front pioneer. It's just that means that you have the pioneering spirit that you're giving a portion of your life, if not your whole life, to dedicate your activities and so on to serve the faith in a particular locality or several localities. So, Lanelma, were you and Ray on the same page as far as this idea of going pioneering? You'll have to explain how we checked it out. (laughs) Well, it was interesting. Ray went by himself the first time to check it out. Actually, that was in 1970 that he went to India. And he came home and he showed these slides that were really shocking. It showed the streets of poverty and so on. Children living on the streets and the poverty and... The Indian toilets, which is a hole in the ground. Uh, yeah, wanted to know if we'd like to, if I thought we should go, and so we thought about it and we prayed about it, and we decided yes, we should go. But then I had an opportunity because to go by myself as well to India in April of 1971. Went to the school, New Era School. I had a wonderful time and stayed about 10 days, I guess. Was convinced and came home and said, yes, we should go. And what was the name of the school you went to? It was a new era school in mm-hmm. Panchgani, India. Mm-hmm. We stayed 12 years. What did the two of you do there? I went there as the, the headmaster, the director of the school, very soon Lanelma picked up, she first started just on projects, like the school needed a library. The library, when we got there, was in a steel cupboard locked up in the principal's office. (laughs) And so I put her in charge of developing a library for the school, and that was her first major project, and she did a fantastic job. But then we had a need to move her into the residential part of the school, And so she began to be trained with the founding lady of the school, Mrs. Mobanzada, better known as to hundreds and thousands of young people all over the world as Rizwan Kanun. And she was 21 years old when the NSA of India asked her to go and start this school in Panchgani. She's still there. She's given her whole life to the school. Of course, she's retired now but she lives in the school. And so Lanelma started helping her and became the director of residence of the school, uh, looking after three or 400 children in the dormitories and everything. So that was our two major roles in the school as it was developing. And what would you say were your major accomplishments being the director of the school, Ray? There's, I guess, two or three different levels of development. One of them is that we started a uh, rural development program at the school. We moved from the state system of education, say to Maharashtra in India, to the national or the central system of education. And in that process, they had a uh, subject, I guess you might say, called social and useful productive work or something like that something that today we call service program in schools. 
socially useful productive work. That's what it was called. And so we started uh, experimenting with that particular class, and the kids started doing different projects and work around the school mostly, and sometimes down in the villages they would run scabies camps and help to build roads and clean water and things of this nature. And I think uh, your listeners may find it interesting that when we were going back one time to the United States to visit our parents. We had been there, I think, three and a half years before we came back to see our parents. We made a stop in Haifa. Haifa, Israel, is the world center of the Baha'i faith, and they had their administrative structure there. So I was meeting with three of those individuals. In that process of sharing this report and so on, because they were very intimately involved in the development of this school at that time. After I gave the report, they said that we'd like to hear some more about this service project that you have started, the service program. So I explained what I could about it, and they said that they're hoping that we would be able to expand that program. They made a statement that's really, I mean, so commonly understood today, but back then it was revolutionary, and that was that one of the distinctive features between a Baha'i school and any other school in the world is that it has to have service. It has to be of service to humanity, service to its local community. And therefore, it's such an integral part of what Baha'i education is all about that we want you to explore the development of this service class, this service component. And they had arranged for me to meet with Mildred and Rafi Mataheda in New York. And so during that trip, I went to New York and I met with Mildred and Rafi, who are very, very wonderful Baha'is. Both have passed away now. And they helped guide us and get us started and helped to fund a rural development program and an institute of rural technology, which has grown today and has evolved into some pretty fantastic programs. One is a teacher training program that produces fantastic teachers through either a one-year or two-year certificate program, and some other major work that is going on over there still. So that would be one accomplishment that helped develop and helped to get that off the ground. It was a real joy to me. Of course, the other one is just the upgrading of the school from both a uh, physical point of view with new buildings and roads and so on, but also the spiritual component, the working to develop a program where just the whole spiritual development of the child was the primary focus and was integrated into the academic program. So we had a good run at that, and it was the high point of our life as far as our Baha'i service was composed. Could I add, I think another important thing happened during that time to make the school an international school, really. We had children from Iran, and of course, when the revolution happened in 1979, the children could not return to their home in Iran. And in fact, Just before the revolution happened, many, many students came out of Iran to India 
to go to New Era School, I think there was a charter flight that brought out 90 children, new children. I'm talking about young children because we had children in our school from ages five, five years through high school and then junior college. These young people from Iran are around the world now, and during the revolution, they could not go to back to Iran. So many countries took them after their graduation into their countries. The UN helped them go as religious refugees and so forth. These young people have a family because they could not go home. So New Era became their family and they became our children. We are still a very close-knit family with this New Era alumni. They're all over the world. They keep in close touch. They have reunions throughout the world. Can you explain to the listening audience why these Iranian students couldn't return to their home country? Well, the Baha'i faith has been persecuted in Iran since the inception of the Baha'i faith in 1844 because the mullahs felt that Baha'u'llah was taking people out of the Muslim faith. They wanted to kill off the growth of this faith. Many thousands have been killed since that time, and in fact, there's still some of them imprisoned at this very moment. The Baha'i children were denied education. That's why the parents wanted to get them out of Iran so that they could continue their education. So what were the circumstances that had you all leave India after 12 years? It was a very sad thing to leave because India particularly was home to all the children. That's where they grew up. That's where they went to all of their education, their schooling and so on, at least up through the 12th grade and so on. And so it was home to them. Their friends were there. They spoke the local language, Marathi and Hindi, and they're very much Indian in their outlook on life and, and their behaviors and so on. But it came a time when both of our parents were not doing well, and we had parental responsibilities. Our oldest girl had graduated and was coming back to the United States to do her uh, university work. And we realized that to be able to support our children in the, in the university work and to look after our parents, it was time that we had to move and start life over again in the United States. We actually found a teaching position, uh, well, an administrative position. I was hired a superintendent of schools in uh, Hardesty, Oklahoma, in the Texas Panhandle. Well, it was Texas County in the Oklahoma Panhandle. And that was a good place for us. It was a small, we still had one child, our youngest boy, still had high school. The other two had already graduated and were getting ready to start college. So it was time for us to make the move. My mother passed away, I think, the first year that we returned, my father the second year, and then her parents went. So it was good that we were here to uh, help take care of them and look after them and get our, get our kids started in university work. So we returned in 1983. We settled one year in Oklahoma, and the following year I uh, took a position at Fort Hayes State University here in Hayes, Kansas. 
We have been here more than anywhere else, I guess. We were here from 84. Yeah, we moved in 84 to 88. Then we had become involved in uh, another educational project, the creation of the Maxwell International Baha'i School on Vancouver Island. And we lived on Vancouver Island for seven years. And that was another very exciting educational endeavor to be involved in the creation of something from the ground up. When we left in 19... 19- 95. 95, that's right. In 1995, the school was packed, had a waiting list, and was financially strong, and for all purposes was, you know, headed in the right direction. Why did you leave after seven years? Well, it was an interesting thing. We were 55 years old. The school, for all intended purposes, was viewed, I had always viewed it as a project, and we realized that we were going to have to go somewhere to where we can start to make our last professional move, because if you wait much beyond 55, it's very difficult for you to get a job in, in the profession of education, particularly the university level. And we also felt like we had to do something about our retirement and make a little money because when we didn't make anything, of course, in India. But when we were at Maxwell, we were at least able to pay and take care of our, our bills and so on, but we weren't able to really put any money aside. So we felt like we had to go somewhere where both of us could work. The university was happy to have me come back. Linelma got a fantastic job working with adults with disabilities. So we were able to both have jobs and work. Then just five years ago, we added our pennies and nickels and decided that we had enough to retire. And so now we have been literally moving where we're more out of the country than in the country. Why don't you explain your living arrangements these days? (laughs) Okay. Well, we do have our home here in Hayes, Kansas, so we have some place to come to. The first thing that we did is we wanted to go on on what Baha'is call a travel teaching trip. And so the day that I handed in my keys to the university, we got in the car, and uh, Lanelma had been working for six months on putting together a travel teaching trip. And we drove 7,500 miles going straight up through Nebraska and Iowa and Illinois and Michigan, and then across into Canada, and then from there in Canada, Toronto and stuff, we went straight east all across out to um, Prince Edward Island, and then back down through New England, and then across Iowa and everywhere, ended up in uh, Missouri and then back into Kansas. And uh, we were able to stop in all these different behind communities and do just such a variety of things That was our retirement gift that we gave to each other. Then we just started traveling international. We spent a lot of times in the islands in the South Pacific doing primarily work with um, children and youth in the Marshall Islands. And we did work in Yap and Palau and Saipan and Guam. And we just had a wonderful time. And then we, this last year, uh, we spent all year at the Townsend International School in the Czech Republic, uh, which is another Baha'i-inspired international educational program. 
so we have been busy <laughs> having fun. <laughs> well, we're doing some family things. We're having our 50th wedding anniversary. Our kids live all over the world. Uh, we have one son and his family in Guam, another son who has just finished 15 years in Brazil and is being taken over position as the uh, headmaster of the American International School of Bombay. He's going to India. And our daughter lives in Gloucester, Massachusetts with her husband and family. We have seven grandsons. And they are all gathering together, and we are going on an Alaskan cruise. So that's going to be our 50th wedding anniversary. Then we're going to do a few more things in the States, and then we're going back to the Czech Republic. We're still on the, the board of directors of that institution. Otherwise, we haven't really selected our ne next major project. Monelma, do you want to add anything? I think just what I'd like to add is that since our whole life has been focused on youth and children, that's our passion. Wherever we go, we try our best to talk to junior youth who are 11 to 14 and do some training with those uh, young people and the adults in the community. The youth of the world are our future and uh, we need to look after these children and pre-youth and youth. And so I think we will continue our lives with that passion, and all of our children are in the field of education as well. What do you think your life would have been like if you hadn't run into the Baha'i faith? I don't want to sound um, prejudicial, I guess you might say. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I think that we would be very limited in our view of humanity. The world is our home, and we feel comfortable no matter where we go, and we have family no matter where we go. A year ago, we were traveling down into New Zealand and Australia, and everywhere we go, we have family. And so it's just a, a, the most marvelous thing to, to realize that the earth really is one with its family. So if we didn't have the Baha'i faith, it would be very difficult to establish that family relation. For example, in Burma, which is now Myanmar, that community of people there is just unbelievable because they have been for decades suppressed, oppressed, limited in what they could do, and yet they are such a happy, joyful community. Lenelma, anything you want to add? By the way, Lenelma, I think your name is beautiful. My mother made that name up. She actually put two names together. A good friend of hers was Linnell, and she had a sister, Emma, hmm. so she put, made it Lenelma. That's sweet. <laughs> what I would like to say is that I don't think young man and woman coming out of a town like Perry, Oklahoma, would have ever gone to India or other places in the world if we had not found the Baha'i faith and had seen the world as our family and embraced that. It truly has blessed our lives and our children, and we feel we are world citizens and are very grateful for that. 
Well, we know our children are much more world citizens than we are because we still had baggage that we came into the faith with, and yet they started at a completely different level than we did. And it's amazing to see what they have been able to accomplish in their own lives, both in their service to their love of the faith, but also into their professions uh, with a standard of excellence and always doing the best that you can. And this is just who they are. They would be quite different people. Well, Ray and Lanelma, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your story with me. Well, uh, we enjoyed it, and I thank you for the invitation. It was kind of fun reminiscing. Yeah, it's great. Thank you. It was, it was very nice. We appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ray and Lanelma Johnson, Baha'is who have dedicated their lives to the education of children all over the world. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.bahai.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.